<laughs> oh, it just takes a sec to get the recording going for some time. All right, there we go. All right, and we're on, man. Um, welcome everyone back. This is another episode of the GTM Kickback, number one go-to-market leadership interview and strategy podcast in the world. Um, super exciting guest this week, Mr. Kale Skaldarud. Close. That, that's Skaldarud. it. Yeah, we'll totally take it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I totally got in my head by asking. Uh, too many times I was pronounced and I'm like got mixed things in my head. Super excited to have you, Kale. Um, you're you've got a very interesting, very diverse background that I think is going to help a lot of people from a bunch of angles of operating, from leadership, from inception of tech organizations, from investment to entrepreneur methodologies. Um, you've been an operator within growth stage SaaS organizations and specific domains for some time, and um, that's basically a SaaS go-to-market leader that's done all of the above that. Uh, we sort of talk about it this show and you've since moved into an entrepreneurial endeavor and an investment endeavor where you're helping basically micro acquire SaaS organizations and beef them up, man. Um, and it's it's really cool and really interesting, the methodologies that me and you have talked about that you put in place from a go-to-market approach and sort of putting these scaling factors in place for early stage tech companies all across the board. So super excited to dive into it with you, man. Could you give the people a brief self-introduction? Give us a little bit of bio and what you're doing right now, and we'll just jump into this. Yeah, yeah. Well, Joey, my my goodness, man, that was very well said. I'm not sure I could add much to that, but yes, was that good? Uh, that was on point. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So. My name is Kale, and I usually leave the last name out just for the sake of everybody. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so I, I guess just to kind of work our way backwards. So I uh, I just started um, a, an acquisition, like a buyout acquisition fund called Scaling Ventures, which one, once upon a time was my consulting firm. I kind of breathed new life into it. And the intent is to go acquire really small SaaS companies, which I guess are now more commonly referred to as micro SaaS companies. So if you go to like an acquire.com, a few groups that have gone hard at kind of establishing productive marketplaces for these types of businesses have really brought micro SaaS kind of into the Zekist for, for the SaaS loyalists, if you will, or the, the, the SaaS faithful. Uh, before that, I was a private equity sponsored CRO, uh, mostly at buyout funds. So I think we were doing... SaaS buyouts, five to 10 million in ARR, and I would get plugged in as the CRO to grow it and, and lead the exit. Um, and then before that, I was an operator, mostly kind of VP of sales roles, sales and brand firms like Harry uh, and others. And those were mostly venture back groups. And then before that, I ran my own consulting firm and I was basically a mercenary for hire, sponsored again by the venture community where they'd park a series A somewhere. They would install me to get some, you know, go to market infrastructure, go and support the transition from founder led sales and to kind of de-risk that first like sales leader hire. There's always kind of that funky domain where it's like, hey, it's founder led sales. Do we hire an SDR and just pump volume through the founder? Do we bring in an account executive or do we really send it and hire VP of sales? And that timing was tricky generally. So I, there was a little niche for me and, and I guess all that trajectory too. I was in New York City for 10 years. I uh, went to business school at NYU Stern. That was a hoot. Um, and I started my career at ADP doing big kind of sales machine at an insane uh, scale and, yeah. and kind of cut my teeth there running around New York pretending like I knew what I was up to and I had no idea. So I've kind of covered the <laughs> gambit, I guess. Yeah, just to speak very simply, I've kind of covered the gambit across like seed stage, series A, series B, and then into 
buyouts and you know kind of a transition from venture backed into private equity sponsored and i really found my groove in kind of this buyout environment where you acquire businesses and then you kind of install your team to operate and transform uh generate growth improve margin and then kind of keep the trains on time and and harvest the value from there Uh, and i guess the cool part and this it's been a while since we've been caught or we've been intending to catch up we just acquired our first company last week so i've been at this for six months and getting origination going and there's interesting frameworks obviously that translate very well to originating deals and on the investment side right kind of the go-to-market mechanics either there's a a prospect at the end of your machine or there's a private company that you want to acquire but all the blocking and tackling translates pretty well so it worked (laughs) so so far (laughs) i love it man i love it and yeah like i said nothing but just like an incredibly diverse and exciting background that you bring to the table man and i'd say um correct me on this too if, if anything is amiss but it all seems like it's very centric to the theme of helping support growth stage organizations at very key inflection points in their business growth, whether that's a venture backing, private equity backing, some sort of organic market growth, and like helping implement scalable go-to-market motions. And it's not like it's not like there's a single motion that comes in. You're like a true analyst that can come in and look at different variables inside of an organization and construct bespoke plans repetitively over and over and over again with my success rates to actually help them achieve whatever their goals are, whether that's a transaction or just profitability or just, you know, having a better time <laughs> with what they're doing, you know, and that, that's yeah. exciting, man. Um, and that, that's our topic for today, just to clear up for everyone is basically how you've been able to build high performance go-to-market frameworks for early stage and growth stage technology companies and your, um, your methodologies for understanding what you're working with, right? How to mold the clay and what frameworks that you're actually going to put into place there. Um, let me start with um, a fear for asking kind of a stupid question. I know this doesn't necessarily have an answer, but like, what is your overall methodology or framework when you come into one of these growth stage SaaS companies? I know it's not a one size fits all. So maybe even tell me what are you looking for? How do you assess and then therefore develop, you know, the right framework based on what you see that a company's got or what potential that they have? Yeah. Ooh, good question, Joey. I mean, I think, um, you know, generally I, I think the, the context, if you were to really kind of simplify it, because that's the thing that you have to f- kind of first get correct with is, is and you can think about it, like move has done it and there's some good ones, but as long as in your mind and you can do some quick research, when you think about like, what does a maturity curve look like for go to market where you have something that's very early, which is like, Hey, we're just spraying leads. If somebody will take a meeting with us, our founders pitching all the way up to, you know, we have four hyper-defined ideal customer profiles. We have a, a sales motion that's, you know, very, I guess, validated with data. There's exit criteria at each stage. We can measure engagement with the prospects. We can measure intent over time. And we have the systems to get there. And we're thinking now about how we layer into the next ICP. Like you could kind of generally say that we have a ramped you know, team of AEs and their specialization in the function uh, across, you know, pitching, doing technology demos, implementation, et cetera. As long as kind of in your mind, you can say, okay, in SaaS or kind of high technology sales, there's a spectrum of nascent to mature. And you might put like four or five flavors on that, on that timeline. And you can come in and say, okay, like the first thing you do is just observe, right? And assess um, and kind of understand, all right, in these maybe four or five functions, um, and, and the book that I would actually recommend right now, that's probably done the best. It's like literally sitting over here 
It's uh, Move, the four-question go-to-market framework. It's by Sangram Vajra, and uh, he has a pretty solid framework, which I think is probably the best consolidation of thinking around the maturity curve right now for go-to-market frameworks. Um, so generally, if I come in, I mean, and like you have to be kind of, I guess I have a set of principles, maybe five to 10 principles, and, and the ones that I find myself saying the most often is you don't rise, and this is a James Clear, so I'm, I'm obviously ripping him off pretty shamelessly, but you don't uh, we don't rise to the level of our goals. We fall to the level of our systems. So the first thing you kind of do when you step in is understand, okay, like what information do we know, right? Like what information are we able to gather over time? What are our assumptions? How confident are we in our assumptions? Um, and what are our base rates? Because you can only improve what you measure over time, right? So in simple context, you know, be like, hey, uh, like it's pattern recognition early days, right? Where, you know, if you step into like, let's say, and I'm not the I'm not the pre-revenue human. Like I am not a fine product market fit person. That world drives me insane. It's just, you know, I'm just not that person. But once you stick product market fit a to a certain, you know, yeah. it's like, it's just too amorphous for me. And I like, it's like, hey, we got something here. And I used to joke that it's, you know, it's about turning kind of art into pop. So it's like, you take something that's a little bit, you know, uh, I guess difficult to define and you map it to the market and you turn it into pop and scale it, right? And so uh, once that moment, is kind of occurring and there is strong product market fit and people are jazzed about scaling it that's when i usually come in and that's when i get excited and for that it's typically a function of like what's made us successful what are the patterns among our customers uh how do we gather data around our customers to get more clear around the patterns are because it's very simple i mean joe if you're like hey i want to make more friends it's like okay cool tell me about your five best friends. It's like, well, it turns out they wear jean jackets, uh, they're football fans, and they listen to this station on Spotify, right? And it's like, okay, cool. So to know about yeah. that, we would need some access into their wardrobe decisions. We need access into what they're looking at on TV or their sports affiliations. And we need to understand what the most trafficked phone is on their app. But once you find those patterns, it's like, cool. Now I know that if I, I have a much better likelihood of finding you friends, if I can find the three or five patterns among the friends that you're the closest with, right? So a lot of that time, early days, it's like, let's get clear about our ideal customer profile because the tendency is always, if you sell to everyone, you sell to no one, right? And especially in horizontal SaaS, which is where most of the venture money is, they're like, you know, we have this new project management thing and we can sell to everyone under the sun. It's a trillion dollar market and we're gonna go take the whole thing. Uh, and that's a, pretty much the exact opposite of what you want to do. It's kind of counterintuitive, but you want to go small to go big. So it's like, hey, let's get very definitive about the general TAM that's available to us. Then let's think about the lowest hanging fruit and how we define the lowest hanging fruit. And let's acquire that with ruthless discipline. And then we can kind of move the ladder up the tree, so to speak, and get the next layer of fruit. Um, so I can tell a story about that. When I was at Harry once upon a time, it was a workforce operating system for... Um, hospitality. So it was catered towards kind of high turnover, hourly plus tipped uh, employees. And a lot of that work stream was really focused around applicant tracking. So how do we actually get talent in here, scheduling, um, time and attendance, and then of course, payroll. But those were like the real inflection points in kind of that category. Um, and when we really started to have success and the tendency at the beginning was like, if you're a restaurant, Harry's for you. And it was like, well, actually there's quick service restaurants. There are fast casual restaurants. There's fine dining restaurants. There are people who own one or two franchises. There are people who own a hundred franchises. And once we got pretty disciplined around like there are ICPs within the ICP, 
And again, like we don't want to spread, like we're going after Joey's new buddies. We need jean jackets, Spotify, and football. <laughs> and like we will yeah. go and, and acquire those friends first and then we can broaden our, our britches. So I think a lot of it, no matter what stage you're at, is like, what are we super clear on? What information do we have that makes us really confident in where we're going? And do we have the systems in place to measure that always, right? Because in those scenarios too, it's, it's a binary outcome. So losing an opportunity is just as productive as winning one, right? It all feeds back into the feedback loop. So it's like, hey, where are we losing most of our deals or our opportunities? Where are we winning them? And that all just pulls back into the matrix, but that's a function of systems. That's really interesting. And that's something that's kind of come up in our business and working with some very specialized client domains, right? Uh, over the last couple of months. What do you think about the spectrum of that, right? In terms of very narrowly defining your ICP within hyper-focused domains. Like I can imagine you can't go too far on either side, right? If you sell everyone, you sell no one, right? Too broad, too generalistic. No one's going to understand your messaging. It's not going to be compelling to them. But often if you go too narrow, you might be sacrificing certain market caps for yourself. Obviously, sure. it's probably less important early stage because you're just trying to get so many clients. You're not trying to take over the world. But where do you sort of like, see that line um falling or how do you assess that spectrum yeah so that's a very interesting question as well when and i think a lot of times too is you know early days they're like hey we've we don't really know what the patterns are um we've got you know 10 customers and we think they're all from this vertical or we notice that these are the conditions that are present at all these companies they're all you know, whatever corporate spinoffs or something like that. And it's like, okay, so that's kind of interesting. You're starting to see the patterns because the Holy Trinity, right, is right person, right message, right time. And it's generally more easy or more, less difficult, I should say, to get the right person, right message correctly. Once you start to get the timing down and it's, you know, the question is like, what are the conditions that make a good prospect for us? We already know that they're a good fit based on their profile. That's where it starts to get pretty interesting. Um, but in the context too of kind of early days, you want to talk to everybody. Right. So that's where it's almost like we don't really know. So it's like, cool, let's send a shitload of automated emails out into the ether and just see what resonates and with who. And like, it's our job right now to just spray and listen very intently <laughs> and try to learn as much as we can. And then once we feel a little more confident, we can establish some assumptions and some experiments to go validate those assumptions and continue to kind of build our thinking around the business. Um, so with that said, I mean, I, and I don't think you can really go too narrow. I mean, there's other elements too, obviously yeah. in terms of like big picture context, like it depends a lot on if you're identifying like, Hey, this is an enterprise kind of sales led motion, or we're going harder after SMB and it's going to be a little more product led. Um, and that obviously foots to a whole bunch of assumptions. But um, I mean, I think if, you know, no matter what, I mean, you, if you go for a really small segment of the market, I guess the only thing that is a concern is the opportunity cost that like, Hey, we wasted our time going after a very small subsegment of the market and we haven't had much success there. But I think that's yeah. kind of nearsighted because in, in that capacity, right, the process of elimination is also very productive. So it's like, hey, we spent a quarter going hard after this very established list of named accounts that we thought were going to be the club bangers. And in that context, it would be like a sales led kind of more upmarket enterprisey thing. We didn't not we didn't create any opportunities. We didn't knock down any accounts. It's like happy days, like that's productive forward progress, you know, in, in terms of learning, it might be identified as failure. Yeah. And if there's a lot of pressure to generate revenue or generate profitability, you know, that could be kind of a devastating quarter, but you also have to kind of know what you're willing to risk. And then you can kind of hedge your bets too, right? So it's like, Hey, we're going to go hard at this super niche niche of the thing, because that's where we have kind of the most conviction at this point. 
and we're going to spend 30% of our time spraying to see where, where might be our kind of next best bet. Yeah, hundred percent. I guess it's a productive use of time. If you actually learn something and change it instead of repetition off the back of that. What about the variables that you're looking for when you're analyzing these companies? Like, are you looking just at, you said market segmentation, right? Um, enterprise, mid-market, S&B, or however broadly you've done that. Domain expertise, right? Going into restaurants as a domain, but also slicing that into QSRs and fine dining and food and things like that. What other variables outside of that are you looking at to sort of assess uh, what a company's ICP is and the best, I guess, attention to put their directive towards in an outbound perspective? Yeah, yeah, it's so funny because I wear different hats now because I was like, it, from the context of like an investor and like looking at a SaaS company that you want to acquire, I have like a very defined, you know, scorecard, so to speak. But then from, you know, yeah. if I put my operator hat on, um, well, I mean, I mean, at the bottom and, and you got to love it, I guess it, it's kind of commonly referred to as splitting the atom. Like I, you got to love those split the atom moments or Occam's razor when you find like that pure simplicity and it's like, holy shit, I think this whole thing is about that. And for me, sales velocity has been that in many ways. And it's a very simple equation, right? Where it's like you have an average number of opportunities that you're working. You have a percentage win rate times the typical contract value. And those are all above the line. And then the, the, the divisor is um, cycle time, right? So it's like, we have this much stuff with this likelihood of winning. And if we win it, it's for this dollar value and it's gonna take us this long to do it. And that's the calculus for revenue, right? Like straight up. So those are the levers yeah. that you have to pull. It's like, hey, I'm going to generate more opportunities. We're gonna improve our win rate. We're gonna improve our contract values or we're gonna reduce our cycle time. Like we're gonna sell faster, and then the other simple thing, right, is you either sell more widgets or you sell the same number of widgets at a higher price. So it's pretty obvious, you know, what levers are there um, for a lot of groups. The challenge is that they haven't been measuring that stuff. Right. So there's no base rates. So you step in and it's like, hey, you know, it's nutrition and fitness is always a good metaphor for go to market, interestingly. But it's like, hey, you know, we want to get stronger. It's like, well, how much do you bench? They're like, I don't know. It's like, all right, how many calories do you eat a day? Right. Well, I don't know. And it's like, all right, let's start there. Right. So it's like, let's get clear on yeah. what the base rates are and let's understand the metrics that are assumptions that we think are really impactful for the business. Let's measure that. And then let's come up with a game plan on which lever. And, th and that's where financial modeling can be very helpful. But usually cycle time is the name of the game. Right. I mean, if you can speed up the, the, the pace at which you can execute transactions and win customers, then you're in good shape. Um, but in the bigger kind of context, if I'm thinking CRO hat now, CEO hat, acquisition is just one part of the game, right? And I mean, it's like, you can have $100 of revenue for every $10 of revenue that we retain for the lifetime value, because, you know, retention is ultimately the name of the game in SaaS. It's what influences unit economics. So you, you can't get too jazzed. And that's the tendency, right? Hunting is so much sexier than farming. So everybody's like, oh my God, what is, what's new logo growth look like? And it's like, eh, let's talk about net dollar retention, because that's the thing that kicks off cash until the end yeah. of time. And that's why SaaS is, you know, arguably one of the most interesting business models ever. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, give me both your investor advisor and operator hat on sort of this piece of it, but progressionally you've done the assessment, you've done the, um, I guess, criteria gathering and the, the definition of what's going to be a good framework and methodology to implement in a business. How do you implement that from each of those different angles, whether you're the one that is the sales or go-to-market leader, you're the operator uh, sitting at like the CEO or uh, chairman level, or you're the investor that's coming in advising and consulting or as a consultant going in there and helping these people actually 
do something about it, right? So maybe yeah. use the example of like some of these very early stage SaaS organizations that are either getting a first time sales leader or founder led sales or just in their infancy, right? When it comes to go to market approach, like what did they need to set up and how do they operate? Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting too. And I guess the perception has changed a little bit recently. Like there's been a lot uh, on the LinkedIn platforms and I guess other kind of sassy areas where a lot of people like me hang out, but uh, the, the role of RevOps has exploded. Yeah. And in my day, RevOps like was kind of an emerging thing. Nobody really knew what it was. It was like the, it was like often like a Salesforce administrator. And I used to run and gun um, at, with Jake Dunlap at Scaled, and I would be kind of like the strategic yep. VP of sales. And then we would bring in a technical lead. So I always saw the appreciation of like a tech stack and automation and harvesting data and data visualization so that you could see patterns and stuff and get smarter over time. So I think my number one, and I mean, just speaking from the acquisition we just made, like the first order of business is to establish infrastructure uh, so you can measure things, right? And like the analogy is if you're, the coach of a soccer team it's like i want to know how long my players can run at which speed i want to know who scores goals from where or it's like i don't even know what i want to measure i just want to kind of measure everything attach measurement instruments so that i have some kind of dashboard so that i'm a yeah. moving towards a data-driven environment um and b so i'm not flying blind right because so often we especially in go to market it's like you know i think this is the part of the market that's interesting or i think bill's doing a good job or i think jan's gonna hit her quota you know or hit her hit her forecast etc cetera, etc cetera, and, and you don't have kind of the system so you know a lot of times when i would be talking in an advisory capacity to a ceo that's like hey i want to transition from founder-led sales i want to hire a salesperson what do you think it was like you should you should hire a rev ops person like you need to establish systems that's and so infrastructure that's so funny. I've been having conversations just over the last quarter with a bunch of the very large and I guess global facing Silicon Valley VCs and a bunch of different technology startups that are going through their either seed or series A fundraising and starting to put down the basics of their um, go to market organization together. And I mean, across the board over the last even 12 months, the tone has changed completely towards RevOps, 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 right? First hire on the board, let's speak with the guys and and the uh, the VC that in Silicon Valley, they cannot hire enough of those people at the moment right now. The salaries and rates for these people are astronomical. I mean, I'd say, I'd say they doubled in the last 24 months, right? From oh, <laughs> mid 100s oh, sure. to 300, 400K in total comp to get someone extremely competent that's both technical, but also strategically driven and sort of running a, a proper operation, understanding what data, numbers, and figures to look at and advise within an organization to make sure that everyone is hitting everything successfully. And I mean, it's it's been almost like a, a craze uh, for RevOps leadership or sales operations leadership or marketing operations leadership, however people want to label it. It's, it's all, you know, a, a dozen the same, but that's really interesting that you um, say that too. How soon ago or how long ago have you started seeing that trend? How long ago did that become important? Because it seems recent to me, at least in, in yeah, a larger yeah. scale. For sure. And I think it's also kind of been like the distinction between like a CTO and like a leader of IT, right? It's like, all right, a yeah, leader of IT fair. kind of connects systems and, you know, makes things secure. A CTO is much more strategic. So we saw kind of that same transition revolution, if you will, in RevOps, where it was like, hey, we need a Salesforce admin. We need somebody to help us implement outreach. We've got a HubSpot landing page. We need to connect that to Google Ads. What does that look like? But I think regardless, technical tooling and skill sets, 
per, started to permeate in the go-to-market hard. And that was a function of the advent of all this marketing technology. And then of course that bled over into sales processes. Um, so I think probably five years ago, people knew like myself, I was like, and I was, I would position myself as like a package deal almost. So it'd be like, Hey, I'm talking to XYZ private equity fund. They want to pull me in to be a CRO. And it's like, cool, I'm the CRO. And this is our VP of RevOps or VP of growth or whatever title you want. But this is the person who's going to come in and help us establish systems. And they'll be responsible for the data strategy, how we acquire data, how we make use of it. Because now like the 3.0 RevOps people are like, cool. It's like, and what's this worth in a business context where it's like, hey, every Friday you're going to get hit with a dashboard and I've validated that these are the five most important metrics across the business. And I'm going to serve up a scorecard to you every Friday in real time on how you're performing against that scorecard. That's worth everything. <laughs> and like, and I guess what I would say this, like once you have that, yeah. if you move away from it, like right now we're still getting our systems going up and I'm, I feel like I'm flying blind. Like literally I feel like how, and I'm just like, <laughs> it, I'm like an anxious human. Right. And it's like, all right, so cool. Yeah. So we get to this place now where you have raw visibility and you're constantly validating that the metrics you track matter and you have a strategy to improve those metrics over time and you know who's improving better. Like you, there's a way to measure the rate of improvement. Uh, 3.0 is getting predictive with that data. So now it's like, hey, we have an ML model where we can run this through. And it's like, not only can I tell you who our best ICPs are, I can talk to you about the accounts that are in your pipeline and who is most likely to convert into a deal. I can look at the performance of your best reps and tell you who's most likely to extraordinarily blow out their quota. So now it's yeah. not only can you give me raw visibility into the now, but you can kind of predict the future. I'm like, dude, uh, like take the budget for five A's magic and, and, yeah. and give it to a rev ops <laughs> person. And let's just give our two A's Ironman suits to run around and dominate, you know? Um, yeah. So I guess the question was, I, I think it's been coming around for a while, but now everyone's like, Oh, that's interesting. And I think especially on the, on the financial sponsor side, right? Like just, so if I just think about the leverage, if I was a sponsor, yeah. And that category, private, I mean, I've sold a private equity venture for the last couple of years uh, when I was at Alvia. And, you know, they're probably like on average of four or five out of 10 in terms of technology maturity. So, I mean, their inbox is probably the most valuable tool that they have. Maybe they have like a prequent or a pitch book to get data around private companies or what other funds are doing, but none of them are operating like a modern SaaS company, right? So um, in that context, it's like, hey, I wonder how the portfolio is doing. It's like, okay, here's a PDF from this CFO and here's a screenshot of something else from this CFO and here's a forecast yep. for their revenue that's a quarter old. And so that problem is kind of exponential when you start to think about it in the, in the context of a portfolio. So for me, I'm like, I'm going to obviously invest a ton in RevOps for every company I acquire. And I know that that operating leverage stacks as I acquire more portfolio companies. So I'll get raw visibility yeah. into all my portfolio companies. And then I can benchmark my portfolio companies against each other. And I can understand how to allocate resources. So at the operator level, in any kind of context, now all of a sudden RevOps is like a top three function in terms of operating leverage for the business. And then if we think about yeah. it for a venture shop or a private equity shop, and it's like, hey, what should we standardize and make very uh, available across our portfolio? It's like RevOps. <clears throat> No, no brainer, right? Or it's like, or hiring, I mean, is the old one, right? It's like, hey, let's bring a, a, a recruiting team in-house that's going to hire across our whole platform, or let's bring in a digital marketing group that's going to try to support. Yep. But for them, it's so tough to change context of like, hey, I'm going to spin out a digital campaign for this company and this company. They're in totally different markets, different categories, different ICPs, different personas. That context switching is just too tough cognitively for them to execute. Whereas RevOps is a very transferable domain, very transferable uh, kind of skill set. So it's, it's just tremendous leverage.
how significantly can having extremely strong, I guess, quantifiables, data reporting, and just data operations within your SaaS organization change things like multiples on exits or multiples on, um, I, I guess, uh, additional investments or, or um, I guess, any sort of financial indications, right, for people's actual end results? Because I can imagine having a higher quality product and higher quality insight into something that even if it is the same thing, right, compared to A and B companies, one has a sophisticated data operation and RevOps organization and just the culture of that versus someone who doesn't. How does that affect it at the end of the day from an investment standpoint? Yeah, God, really good question too. Joey, these are some club bangers, buddy. Um, <laughs> you, you know, I, I think it's it, going off script. <laughs> yeah, I think it depends on kind of the lens, right? So for me, yeah. if things are kind of sloppy, I lick my chops because that speaks of transformation potential, right? And it's like, ooh, like that stuff's not in order. We can go in there and that's an obvious transformation point that's going to unlock value in the business and make it more valuable. Um, so there's that. On the other side of the coin, like I'm basically going to pay a discount to do that, to lift it up, right? So if I am the entity, the portfolio company, and that's my motivation, right, is to, is to be the catalyst for that change to then get a better multiple on the other side. Um, so the context is always very different, right? So like, you know, if you're talking to a company and it's like, hey, you know, we, th we think we have, you know, this amount of daily active users, we've been growing revenue at this rate and we're pretty confident in that. Um, our churn has like kind of stayed the same here. We see big growth in Europe. Uh, we have a few kind of folks over there versus like, here's a chart showing our daily active usage over time. You can see that it's peaked and climaxed here. We can see retention when we pivoted at this moment towards this vertical in this geographic market, our retention target spike. You can see here are our reps and here's their time to productivity over time. We attribute this to an onboarding process that was standardized and credential based kind of scorecards that people would get certified in each domain to track their progress, right? It's just like yeah. night and day and it's purely a function of systems and data. Right. So it's like the bottom line, it doesn't matter if you're a private equity fund or a SaaS company, like your edge is definitely defined in data and you use that data to sharpen it over time. It doesn't really matter what category you're in. And if you're trying to tell a story, you know, like, I guess for a lot of folks that were fund managers, you know, raising money, it's like, tell me about your investment thesis. And it's like, okay. Yeah. You know, or what makes you different? It's like, oh, you know, we're well credentialed. We've got a strong network and we've generated, you know, X, Y, Z returns. And we kind of go after this uh, definition of a company versus someone that's like, do, 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 you know, like we play in this geographic market <laughs> with this co uh, competitive concentration. We like to see this ARR per employee with this CAC that has varied over this period of time because that makes us think we can improve this margin by this. And it's just like, cool, I'm talking to somebody from the old guard and I'm talking to somebody from, a, a plane where you must be to be elite and to really compete at, at a level that's interesting and to attract capital and to attract customers and to attract everything. You speak on it like it's not necessarily an option anymore to do it or to not do it. I mean, it's an expectation, right, from every angle. Yeah. Well, I'll just say this. <laughs> I, I get primally motivated, like in like an, a, a natural selection evolutionarily way, right? Where it's like, I know that there are people out there that are not embracing this for whatever reason. And people like me are going to come and eat them alive. It's like, there's, you can't, yeah. can't hope to be competitive, right? So the, I guess the cynic in you is like, I hope yeah. that you keep doing the things you've always done with them, you know, be, and not embracing <laughs> yeah. this other stuff. Like one simple example, and I know I don't want to sound cliche with this topic, but ChatGPT 
has given me so much leverage. It's insane. It's like zero to one for me is almost completely gone. Right. So it's like, Hey, we need to write a, a, a SEO strategy. We need to do this. We need to see patterns across all of our customer support tickets and categorize them. We need to think about competitive differentiation and what we should do for a rebrand so that our messaging stands out. And it's the same thing where it's like, you know, the armies with the best tooling win. Right. And so if you're not constantly yeah. picking up the tooling, um, it just gives you less of a chance to, to be successful. So you got to kind of always be on the lookout for the new tools. And obviously you don't want to be chasing the shiny things all the time, uh, but you can't pass on something that brings you operating leverage. And that's almost always systems and data. hundred percent, hundred percent, dude. Um, that's cool. We kind of went over that using data and get smarter over time, but obviously that's just really important for every aspect of your business, operating, selling, leading, growing, I mean, financial events, everything. And then, uh, under the, the sun, basically. Um, back into to playbook. So take me back again. We've set up uh, revenue operations, proper data reporting, understand our ICPs and all the different data points that you need to track for long term success enablement in the long term. Say you're the sales leader, right? Like, how do you, I don't know, how do you construct the team? What elements do you look for? And the specific people that come in very early stage, these SaaS businesses that can like, understand these sometimes ambiguous frameworks where things are moving very quickly and changing very fast at the same time. And obviously in a growth stage organization, very early stage, like you've been working in, um, there's just like a natural sense of ambiguity in everything that you do. Like tell me the elements and methodologies around actual leadership and people growth that you've sort of infused into your organizations. Yeah, totally. Well, I think the other one is we have a playbook for that, right? We have a playbook for that. And it's like, cool, let me see it. It's like, oh no, it's, yeah. You know, everyone knows it. And so like rule number one, if it's not documented, it doesn't exist, right? And you can't possibly <laughs> manage people towards that, that, that uh, I guess, bar, uh, yeah. or it makes it infinitely more difficult. So the first thing is like, you have to have a sales process and there's Mark Robert has some good stuff around it. It can be very simple around like, hey, there's four or five stages to our sales process. This is what we need to see from the customers. This is what our salespeople need to do. And this is how you exit each stage. It can be just as simple as that. And, and then CRM inputs, right? This is kind of how we organize our information within an opportunity from there. So the first thing is like your core playbooks that are mission critical need to be documented because you can't hop, you're hopeless in terms of driving behavior towards what that intended kind of playbook or managing people towards it or iterating on it and improving it over time. So the kind of the cardinal sin is to not have stuff documented. Um, from there, to answer your question around building teams, there's been a lot of thought leadership around this too. And I think there's a lot of consensus where, you know, you kind of have the earlier stage, like you need process creators. And then it's like, hey, I have no idea. It's kind of a blank canvas. Cool. Let's kind of shape this thing. And that's kind of the first profile that you look for. The next one is we have something here. We need to fine tune it. So you're not creating process, you're refining process. And then the final stage is you're just rinsing process. So it's like we need raw adherence to this because we're trying to just stack as many repeatable units on top of each other in the form of account executives yeah. or whatever the case may be is to just run the place. And, and you try to get to a place where it's coin operated, right? Where it's like we pay this person to run this playbook and they put this coin in and we get, you know, for every 50 cents we put in, we get $5 out. Um, and that's <laughs> generally how it goes. But I think what I see the most often is that, and that's the same in investing too, right? It's like, Oh, you know, that's not part of our playbook. It's like, let me see your playbook. It's like, we, it's like, then it doesn't exist. 
right? Then everything that we're talking yeah. about here is, so everything that we do is in Notion. We have SOPs. We use Scribe how to define stuff. Like right now I'm systematizing everything that's from a support perspective because the seller was managing a lot of the customer support and he's going to be transitioning out. I'm like, I, I, SOP everything. I don't want anybody to think, right? It's like, if you do something once or more, uh, more than once, turn it into an operating procedure so that you don't have to give it that thought uh, because it's such a finite thing, our, our brain power throughout the day. If you do it you know, more than once, templateify it and never think about it again. Um, and that's the same with playbooks that are defended around sales process, how we get down with demos. And ideally, your, your playbooks themselves get uh, more defined and more specialized over time as well. So it's yeah. like, hey, here's our, at the beginning, it's like, here's generally our sales process. And then it's like, cool, here's our sales process for this ICP. You know, we have kind of three core ICPs. There's a little bit of difference in terms of the personas and their buying process. And we've actually put the sales process to that. And here's how it is defined in the playbook. It's really interesting. It takes me back to some stories about um, some of the most successful tech entrepreneurs in the world. And um, this concept of like, stupid proofing your life right that's just how they live like mark zuckerberg wearing the same t-shirt and zip up hoodie every single day to work or steve jobs wearing the same black sweater and, and white sneakers every single day of his, his life out in public right it's just like yeah. creating less decisions to make so you can focus on actually productive means of moving your business and life forward by not having to repeat bs that is just repeatable bs at the same time you know more of a business context well, for sure. And just to have something that's there that everyone can look at, right? And it's like, hey, yeah. this is how we're getting down. Or if you want to critique performance, it's like, hey, we agreed that this is what great execution looks like at the discovery stage of a sales process. Let's watch some game film together. Cool. These are the competencies that we agreed upon. You didn't set an agenda <laughs> or, you know, you didn't you know, break the ice with a show me, you know me, whatever kind of your principles are in those motions. And then it gives you something to actually get aligned around and then iterate performance around, uh, it's critical, without question. I guess last piece, that's what carry us to the end here, Kale, because I appreciate the time you're spending. I know we're getting close to the end, but um, the human elements to it, man. Tell me, um, what are the, the <laughs> you, you got something there? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, I guess, putting these frameworks, procedures, and, and uh, processes in place, excuse me, look fantastic on paper all the mm -hmm. time, right? And they're they're always perfect conceptually, but we know that's not true in reality. What are sort of the human elements that you see disrupting this as a company scales, the pitfalls, the, the red flags, and then um, so we can lead into knowing and preventing those sort of things because it doesn't always end up into a coin-operated machine. It always turns into more of a, uh, a slot machine, right? Where you don't know what you're going to get at always, depending on <laughs> totally. who you bring in and most, most growth stage orgs, right? Totally. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, gosh, well, cause I, you know, what I failed to mention throughout this entire conversation is like the hardcore paradoxes that exist throughout everything that I just said. <laughs> and then yeah. one is, is that humans are, are, uh, it's our differences that make us unique, right? And that, and it, and that, that propels creativity and that stuff's usually rewarded in the market. So you want to establish coin-operated salespeople such that they have rails that will kind of keep them from deviating off of a set of behaviors that you know with conviction lead to more successful outcomes. But you also want them to kind of do their own dance <laughs> on the rails, you know, because yeah. that works in the market and that improves their likelihood of success. And you also don't want to be so rigid such that you stifle 
you ideally you want to operate like a meritocracy, right? So it's like, yes, you have leadership, but the best idea wins always. Um, one that's been validated, of course, over time with data, but you don't want to be so authoritarian and then just adhere to the sales process that you stifle people and you don't get those uh, that ideation or that creativity that a allows people to perform uniquely and better than their peers but also allows you to kind of grab those best practices over time and make the whole machine better um and i think that kind of kind of comes down to situational leadership which is very difficult where if you're a vp of sales or a cro kind of being woke to who you're sitting across from and knowing like, all right, Joey really thrives in these areas. So I'm going to give him as much leash on this stuff as I possibly can. And I hope he comes back with super, something that's super interesting that we can then kind of spread around the rest of the business. Cause as a leader, it's your job to kind of recognize patterns, good and bad, right? It's like, Ooh, we there's, we're struggling. We're falling down here. This is a training opportunity. Let's roll it out. Let's solve it. Or, Ooh, this is really buzzing. How do I systematize that and roll it out across the rest of the team? Um, so in that context, I think it's, you got to be rigid, but you have to create the space for people to do their own dance and you have to feed them when they, when you start to see them dancing in some kind of way that might unlock some stuff. And a lot of that is also how you kind of set up group dynamics and making, uh, there's a lot of systems, I guess it all does come back to the systems, right? Like just anonymous polls, right? Like you should be harvesting t data from your team too. What do you think's working? What do you think's not working? What am I doing that's helpful? What am I doing that's not helpful? And it's all anonymous, so nobody's spooked. But you yourself, you want to be kind of an iterative thing as an operator, uh, and try to make the machine better and better. Because um, I think everybody wants like the Dalio algorithm that's like, you know, pulling all historical data into a machine and you know predicting what commodities are yeah. going to do for the next quarter. And you try to get there, but at the end of the day. You know, it, it's that human creativity that cr creates outcomes that you could have never predicted, right? I mean, I think that's the coolest part when you see somebody go out and do something and it's like, holy shit, you just did something extraordinary that I could have never done in a million years. And I'm so grateful for that. And, you know, I'm glad that you have the space to do it. That's why a lot of these companies, I guess, get accepted in the first place, right? Off of those sort of realities. Um, but that's interesting, man. We could probably do a whole other podcast for another hour, just on like the human elements of that whole thing. So I won't let you drag on too much about it, but this is fantastic, man. I mean, just incredible insight. You've got a very impressive career, uh, behind you. And of course, ahead of you too, right. And sort of leading operating consulting with these types of businesses, any closes or, or plugs we can put in, what can, uh, the people do to find you? What can they um, if they can find you or if that's all cool or anything that you'd like to say out here related to the business you're doing right now at all. Yeah. Um, well, scaling ventures with a K if I had any real courage, I would have done S K A A L I, but it's S K A L. I was wondering why. Yeah. Uh, no, why I should have gone for it. Uh, <laughs> I don't know, I, originally it was scaling NYC with a C and scaling NYC. And then I kind of spun out into scaling okay. ventures. So one K was, was the, the only risk I was willing to take, but, uh, yeah, you can find me that's at scalingventures.com. Uh, I have a bi-weekly sub stack, so I'm really committed to building in public. Um, so if you really want to follow along yeah. our thought process, I'm analyzing deals on a bi-weekly ba basis. I announced, uh, the acquisition we did last week that, it, you know, goes pretty under the hood with our investment thesis. And I guess I'm trying to kind of go about private equity my own way and kind of yeah. shine light where it's typically very opaque and not do the conventional stuff like shout acquisitions from the hilltops, like kind of keep the portfolio anonymous, but keep everything that we're doing to make the portfolio more valuable, accessible. Because uh, my hope is that more people like me that are operators or that are thinking about this stuff 
will think about acquiring a really small company and using that as kind of a way to create escape velocity from whatever they're doing if they're not totally jazzed about it. And also at the same time, not putting themselves in like a true startup, like full risk on hustle, which, you know, can kind of kill your mental health over time or it's a big strain on the family, et cetera. So micro SaaS buyouts, I think it's an interesting path to uh, to some things that I'm jazzed about anyway. So scalingventures.com with a K. <laughs> exactly. it well, I appreciate it. It'll all be linked in the bio. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you everyone for listening. It's another episode of the GTM Kickback and we'll be back very soon. I appreciate it, man. No, an awesome job, Joy. Thank you for having me. This was outstanding. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.